Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Chilton Williamson Jr. is with us today. He served as literary editor at National Review for many years and columnist at Chronicles Magazine. He is a novelist. I'll mention uh, the, the, the one trio of novels, Desert Light, The Homestead, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's a memoirist, roughnecking it about his time in the gas fields of Wyoming. Rusty Reno might have something to say about that. And he is a cultural commentator uh, uh, as well. Uh, for example, after Tocqueville, The Promise and Future of Democracy. He also has a new book out called The End of Liberalism, and that is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Chil- Welcome, Mr. Williamson. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you, Mr. Bauerlein. All right. Your opening, your opening sentence is, liberalism is not yet a dead faith, but it's a dying one. Now, by faith, do you mean that term loosely, or you really see liberalism as some kind of religion? I, I see it as religious in the sense that it's a substitute for religion, and liberals tend to uh, pretend, well, they treat it as a religion and they take it as a religion in, in, in lieu of, uh, uh, in lieu of uh, some sort of uh, uh, organized religion or even philosophical religion. And at the center of liberalism, I mean, every religion has a conception of of humanity. You say that at the center of liberalism is something of, quote, the concept of generic man. What what is generic man? Liberals see man as as a type of creation, which is more or less invariable. Uh, whose differences among specimens of which are not innate to that particular specimen, but imposed upon him by his milieu. In other words, tabula rasa, the human species exists as a a tabula rasa species with no innate uh, individual characteristics and differences and discrepancies. So... Everything is environmental, and if that's the case, then we can change environments, we can change habitats, so we can change the nature of human beings. Yes. Well, I guess there is no nature. We can change the condition. Yes. The inner, the inner makeup of human beings. Yes. Every, all human beings to liberals are infinitely malleable and plastic. Uh, according to their environment and uh, according to how they are acted upon by outside uh, 
by outside factors, including other human beings. And one of the features of liberalism is that while human beings can change, liberals such as Barack Obama always believe that the next generation is going to be more liberal than the preceding generation. Why do they have such confidence in a progressively more liberal, less conservative, less religious future? Because they are uh, historicists in the sense that they think that history has a, uh, has a, a direction, a uh, geological path, path and uh, future <clears throat> that may be interrupted from time to time by such people as uh, Mr. Obama's successor, Donald Trump. Um, but cannot be ultimately um, swerved from. For example, this is, this is why they, they like to talk about being on the wrong side of history, the right side of history. The wrong side of history to them is the, are the people who are not with the program, as they would say, and who are not on the side of uh, the inevitable end of history, yeah. Francis Sukuyama's end of history, for instance. When you've been, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that you've been in debates or discussions with with liberals, and you've encountered this this faith or this confidence, this conviction, this unshakable unshakable trust in the future moving in their direction. Uh, how do you respond to them? How, how have you how have you coped with that that self confidence, that affirmation? Well, to take just one example, uh, I remember that remark of Obama's very well. What he was essentially saying was that uh, every generation will be more more liberal than the next, and and this uh, this is again what history is about. What Obama, of course, completely overlooked is that is that people do change uh, between the age of say twenty five and fifty five, uh, and. They change in ways that liberals don't necessarily expect or wish them to change it. And so uh, when Barack Obama talks about the next generation um, being in, in, inevitably more, uh, more liberal than the previous one, he fails to uh, recognize that generations do change within themselves. My generation, for example, is a baby boomer has uh, gone through, I would say, a couple of major changes uh, in my lifetime. Uh, notably, hmm. I'd say probably, um, hmm. we have, my generation has become more conservative. I was at Columbia, I was a junior at Columbia in 1968 during the, during the, the riots there. And Oh, really? So yes, you were part of the problem. I was part of the problem. Exactly. I was not <laughs> rioters. <laughs> But I, my father taught at Columbia and Barnard, Columbia's uh, family institution of the Williamsons. And so I was yet, yet another gener generation of uh, Williamsons, part of one uh, at Columbia. Um, my father was actually a Roosevelt voter uh, as a young man. Uh, he got his um, 
PhD at Columbia as an undergraduate work. But my uh, uncle, Bob, who followed him, uh, was much more conservative than my father had been and remained conservative. And uh, I was probably even more conservative than Bob, uh, if only because I'm a writer and Bob was a businessman. Uh, but I I've seen him. Uh, and then since subsequently, I, I keep in touch with some classmates. One or two of them have actually become more conservative. Um, but I would say the majority of the people I keep in touch with in Columbia have, um, have in fact, um, mellowed, if that's the word, and uh, are certainly, certainly don't hold the same positions they held during the, during the riots of the April that year. Yeah. Did you major in English? No, I majored in uh, I majored in American history, and then I did four years of graduate work in European history. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, so you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the advent of Donald Trump. The election of Trump seemed to be a massive denial of the Barack Obama-type anticipation that history was going in their direction, that the world would inevitably become more progressive. How did they cope with this, with this interruption, with the proper course of things? Well, they coped very badly, um, of course, as we know, and they still are coping badly with it. Um, what uh, Obama overlooked here is that uh, when he talks about a generation of Americans, he talks about a generation of highly educated Americans and, in fact, liberal Americans. And he was completely overlooking, in his generalization, uh, the kind of people that, for example, I worked with in the oil patch uh, out of Kemmer, Wyoming, back in the early 80s. Uh, these people were about my age. Nobody had been to college. Many of them had not completed high school. Uh, and they are, I'm certain, uh, because I keep in touch with a few of them, uh, even more conservative now than they were then. But Obama wasn't talking about people like that. These liberals never are talking about people like that. They, they live in a very, very, very narrow and very sheltered world of their own creation and one that they insist on remaining in. And they show no curiosity yeah. whatsoever about... Uh, about the world beyond. When my book, Roughnecking It, was published, the, the title comes from, it's an allusion to uh, Mark Twain's book, Roughing It, of course, Roughnecking It, which, which covers the same, yeah. uh, same, much of the same country. In fact, Mark Twain went through uh, on, the, on the Overland Trail. He went right just north of Wyoming on the, the Oregon Trail. But anyway, um, my, my uh, editor was, uh, Michael Corda at Simon Schuster, and he predicted great sales for this book. Well, in fact, the book didn't sell all that well, 
and it got some very good reviews, but also got some very critical reviews, not, not critical on literary grounds, but critical um, on the grounds that the reviewers didn't like the subject matter and they particularly hated the characters. Um, people were horrified, hmm. white reviewers were horrified by that book. And so those kind of people who view books from newspapers don't, uh, of course, there aren't any reviews from newspapers anymore. But pe people who, who read the, uh, write that sort of review uh, have no knowledge of the people I was dealing with. I became very, very close friends with some of these people. Um, and they don't want to know them. And they're horrified to know that they exist. And uh, these are the people, of course, that that, uh, that Trump appealed to and, and uh, who voted for him. And here, here's the funny thing. You, you write about this. Uh, these are all the smart people who thought Donald Trump and his advent was a, an interruption in the proper course of time and, and an abomina a moral abomination. And they are the smartest people in, in the room, those, those liberal uh, Obama voters. And yet you note that their reaction to Trump's victory was a heightened specimen of, quote, emotionalism. They were so emotional about what had happened. And it, it actually leads you to say that much of 21st century liberalism is, quote, fundamentally irrational. What are the dominant signs of that irrationality that you've seen? Well, I'll start by answering with a quote that I read the other day. I wish I read it in a review, and I wish I could remember what the review was, because Although this is the theme of my book, I didn't encapsulate that theme as beautifully as this gentleman did. I can't, as I say, I wish I could remember who he was. But he said, liberals want to liberate people from reality. They want <laughs> to liberate society from reality. And that is, of course, completely irrational. And... Um, by the definition of it. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm a conservative, Jill, but I, I now want to be a liberal because there are so many times when I would like to be liberated from reality, doggone it, and it just, I, I haven't been able to, to do that. Uh, so you, you've, you've converted me un, unintentionally. <laughs> well, you, so you called the 2016 election a rebellion, Mm -hmm. And you turned to year 2020 and you called that a counter rebellion uh, that in terms of the outcome succeeded. Uh, they got rid of Trump. But you said that there was something dismaying for progressives and liberals, Democrats, that. After four years of attacks on Trump on any number of, of crimes and, and sins, that he got many millions more votes than he had before. Did they did they register that? Did they see that and, and think, my goodness, we still have much, much more work to do to cure America of of this of this uh, this anti-progressive sentiment? Yes, I, I think they certainly thought that. Uh, I will also say that while I don't believe the election was stolen in the sense that 
Trump means that it was stolen, or that most people think stealing uh, means that it was stolen. Um, that, in other words, it, this, the election wasn't stolen the way Mayor Daley used to steal elections in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. But we're learning more and more about how the election was manipulated. And Trump, as I recall, it sounds like a low figure as I get ready to state it, but I believe the, the popular vote that, by which he lost the election was some 44,000 people, 44,000 votes. That's not very much. When you consider that uh, you know, the FBI's involvement with the, um, the, the Biden laptop and um, you know, there, yeah. was there were problems with the voting machines and the fact that the media entirely ignored Donald Trump and gave all their support to, to Biden. I think in a, in, a, in a completely unprovable way, uh, Trump probably did win the election. Now, I think he's behaved very badly since then. Uh, I'm actually, I no longer, I no longer am for him for president, really. Um, but he's behaved extremely badly. And I would like, well, I suppose I would like to see Trump as president. I don't want to see him run for president because I don't think he could win. Um, I'd rather someone like DeSantis who more or less represents Trump's point of view. But no, absolutely, and, and it's precisely, to get back to your original question, it's precisely because the liberals did, were appalled that Trump did so well in 20, that, first of all, they, I think they suspected he would, which is why they behaved, they, they treated him so unfairly as they did, but it's also why they've hit him, been hitting him so hard and so resolutely ever since then, because I think they realized that the 44,000 vote gap could he very easily have been overcome in different circumstances and that terrifies them yeah you know you 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 turn away from the anti if you get out of the anti-trump and anti what everything trump represents you ask in one section well what do liberals want what is their positive agenda and when when you look at the Democratic Party in 2023, what what is the agenda? What are the planks in in the in in the Democratic policy plan? Uh, more of the same that Obama um, worked for, except exaggerated, which is really what um, Biden's trying to do now, um, and. It's also a matter of uh, reverse Trump. Uh, everything, which of course is how Biden has run his administration in two years, on immigration do exactly the opposite of what Trump did. On uh, foreign policy do exactly the opposite of what Trump did. On energy do exactly the opposite of what Trump did. And this is what uh, they have planned for um, an administration beginning in, uh, as a result of the 2024 election. Uh, you turn to the meaning of populism and you say that populism is a little bit of a misnomer. The, the phenomenon we see out there, it's a little bit misunderstood. Uh, 
how do you characterize, how do you understand the, the, the at least populist phenomenon as it's called? What do you think it's all about? Well, of course, the original populists in American history that were going back to William Jennings Bryan, et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the 1890s, the 1880s and 1890s and early 20th century, uh, was far more uh, left-wing than people we call populists today. And the, um, Trump is certainly not a left-winger. And none, none of the people he, who voted for him that I know of are left-wingers. Uh, by populist, they mean at, simply anti-elite, I believe. Yeah, yeah. You, you give an opinion in the book of the elite, your own opinion. Here's, here's what you say. It's on page 83. Mm-hmm. The American elite is determined to create and sustain a country worthy of its own greatness as it sees it. But the great and powerful are not the whole of America, but only a tiny part of it, and not the best part of it, but arguably the worst, the greediest, the most corrupt, the most ruthless elements of a population comprising 320 million people. That, that, that's a pretty summary judgment. I, I actually uh, agree to, to that. And I'd also want to add uh, the most incompetent, at least uh, their own record of governing, they're not. They don't seem to be very good at what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, question, children. How did so many people in leadership positions in our in our society, in po- not only in politics but in academia, even even in in the business world, how did these people get to be the leaders? How did they get to the top if they're if they're if they're this awful? I'm pleased you asked that question because about 10 minutes before I came on the air, the mail arrived and, and I received my two copies of uh, the Spectators, American Spectator, you know, the, the, the American version of the British paper, uh, in which I have a column. And my column this month, which I had a chance to look at before I came on, uh, answers that question. It has to do with our... Uh, highly inflated and highly incompetent and highly ideological educational system, uh, beginning with uh, the K, kindergarten, et cetera, uh, one through 12 grades, and then continuing on through college and university. Um, We have a, a faux educational system that offers people faux education, uh, wholly ideologized, uh, weak on any sense of reality or, or any sense of learning or any sense of the past. And we have, we have created through this highly expensive uh, and highly competitive uh, university system uh, a class of people who have a far higher opinion of themselves than they deserve to have, having partly because they think they learn they learn much more at university than they actually did. And we have an educated class, a ruling class, an elite class, 
that really knows very little, has very little sense of the past, has no, is very narrow in its interests, uh, very narrow in its concerns, and particularly perhaps uh, entirely wrapped up in itself. And and I I actually don't see that getting any any better, uh, uh, Chilton. The the pipeline to me looks like it is. Yeah, it's increasingly selecting the, these kinds of people. It's a class of narcissists, really. Uh, and just look at the FBI people, yeah. for example. Yeah. Isn't that a shock? I know. I know. Drama queens in, in a lot of cases. Anyway, the book is The End of Liberalism. Uh, we've had a good conversation. I encourage people to to check it out. But for now, Chilton Williamson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.